So at Brams Hill, we have very high intellectual capital. I have known my three co-PMs for 14, 17, and 18 years, and my two partners for over 35 years. Welcome to Distinctively Active Investing, Profiles and Perspectives, presented by Touchstone Investments. I'm Blake Moore, President and Chief Executive Officer of Touchstone. On this show, you'll find out what makes Touchstone and its portfolio managers distinctive. We share in-depth interviews with people who are actively engaged in leading and managing the Touchstone funds, and you will hear from other industry professionals as well. Art DiCaetano is co-portfolio manager of the Touchstone Flexible Income Fund. Bramsill Investments serves as a sub-advisor to the fund. Hi, I'm Mary Mock, Divisional Vice President for Touchstone Investments. Our guest today is Art DiGaetano, CIO and founder of Brams Hill Investments. We'll be talking about his career journey as well as his investment philosophy at Brams Hill. First, I asked Art about his background. I grew up in northern New Jersey, about 20 minutes outside of New York City. My uh, parents had been from New Jersey, and I remain there today with my uh, children. I have three kids. Uh, I went to Don Bosco High School in Ramsey, New Jersey, and uh, played football and tennis there, and then went on to uh, Colgate University. So I continued on as a tennis player. I was not uh, Division One football material, although uh, I definitely liked the competition, but uh, I played four years of Division One tennis at Colgate. Uh, had a very good experience there. Great, great school. Made some uh, very good friends. And when I graduated, uh, I, I was in that 1991 graduation class. If you remember, there was a very bad recession. So the only job I could get was at Bear Stearns. And that's where I started my career. To be frank, it was either going to Colgate Palmolive, where I had a job offer, and or the back office at Bear Stearns. I just happened to want to move to Hoboken and be around uh, my family in northern New Jersey. And uh, Bear Stearns, you know, allowed for you know, for me to do that opportunity. Um, and then from there, I, I worked my way onto the trading floor in about a year. And, uh, you know, stayed uh, at the firm for 14 years. And when I had left, I was uh, a partner, senior managing director. At Bear Stearns, I did investment grade debt in the mid-90s. Post the Russia period, I was profitable. So the firm moved me to high yield. And then I ran the high yield trading effort from 2000 to 2004. Um, had about a billion dollars in uh, capital to invest with. I had uh, two PMs in London. Uh, reporting to me, two in New York with me and one in Asia. Uh, I left Bear Stearns in 04. I had a son, one of my sons had a health issue. And frankly, best thing I've ever done, I took a year off. We got him all better. He's uh, playing sports in college uh, as we speak. And uh, I came back to the business in 2005 and I joined RBS. I ran their uh, credit trading for the Americas division. So that was about $4 billion roughly in capital, you know, investment grade down to distressed as well as uh, bespoke credit derivatives portfolios, mostly though investment grade and crossover as a business mandate. After two years at RBS, I moved to the buy side. I went to a large hedge fund called GLG Partners. At the time, they were 
based out of London. Uh, they were $25 billion global macro. And I joined the New York office to manage a credit portfolio from one of the larger equity funds. Um, needless to say, a year later, come December 08, which was a very difficult period, my, my portfolio was up about 3.6%. Gentleman who ran GLG seeded me with $100 million of his own capital to start what's today called our income performance strategy. And that strategy looks across not just credit, which is my background, but also preferreds and municipals. So those are the three areas that I have core competency in, as well as my team does. And um, it was originated uh, in Jan 09 at GLG. Art, do you remember your first investment? Yes, it was in 1992, the latter part. I bought some Norsk Hydro debt, and at the time, this was a uh, what was called a Yankee bond. So they were foreign issuers that issue in U.S. dollars. It's my first trade while I was on the trading floor, and just so happened that the trader who was responsible for that portfolio was sick that week. So they asked me to cover for him, and uh, I did a profitable trade. And then a few weeks later. He actually left the firm, and uh, I took over the portfolio. Let's talk a little bit about your investment strategy. How has Bramshill constructed the portfolio for the Touchstone Flexible Income Fund? There are five asset classes that we invest in that we have core competency in, and we avoid anything we don't have a core competency in. So those asset classes are investment-grade corporate debt, high-yield, but I would preface it to say we don't do distressed or triple Cs. So when we're talking high yield, it's more double B um, or secured single A's, preferreds, municipals, and treasuries. So in the portfolio, there is no emerging markets. There is no foreign currency exposure. There's no real estate um, type of private loans, things like that. So we're very concentrated on where we have core expertise. And we think about investments, every, every core part of our process is based on a probability of loss analysis. So we're always thinking when we make an investment, what are the chances or probability of a loss and how much can we lose? So it's allowed in our strategy, which again, that originated at GLG in January 09, it's allowed us to be very opportunistic around opportunities in the marketplace. And you'll have seen in the history, in 09, we were buying more triple B corporate debt at 70 cents on the dollar. In 2011, we positioned to into double A municipals when municipals were under severe pressure. Post-14, 2014 taper tantrum, preferreds were down 25% peak to trough. So we went through our process and then allocated to preferreds. Heading into 2016, we had moved significantly to short-term treasuries, about 50% of the portfolio, and we're able to avoid that entire drawdown. And then March of 16, allocated to credit. So I think we bought uh, Apple bonds at 83 cents on the dollar, um, Hess paper at uh, low 70s, Metal Steel in the 60s. In other words, the probability of loss on these securities when you went through your analysis was so low. But even though the world felt toxic, um, those were low drawdown investments for us. 
um, when we got through our analysis. So we're very opportunistic, very disciplined. We don't use any leverage in the portfolio. We can maintain an investment grade rating that has been uh, since inception of Jan 09. And we keep a bullpen of securities, and I like to call it a bullpen because I, we look at it the way a professional athlete would, where you're always practicing your skills and then you're prepared for, let's say, something that's, that's a, a play you haven't seen or a situation. So currently, we have about 74 items in our bullpen. And what it allows you to do is be prepared to buy something where you think there's a value or a lower drawdown price. So, you know, for example, you know, a little less than two years ago, the retail space in the United States was under pressure and the equity side of the balance sheet was under duress. We did work on about five or six corporate credits from the retail side. And those credits, the debt didn't come down enough to where we thought there was a low drawdown. So the name, those names go in our bullpen. And then every month or every quarter, the team will up update the file on our share drive and we'll review where they are. So in times of dislocation, we're prepared to buy a Kohl's or a Walmart or a JCPenney, whatever the, the, the flavor is. You mentioned treasuries as one of the five core asset classes. How does Rams Hill use treasuries in the portfolio? So we look at treasuries as a position. And unless we are looking to buy long duration, we consider them our liquidity. The past few years, we have been running inside of a two and a half year duration and have had pretty significant returns simply from proper credit positioning as well as positioning and structure. So if you think about a 10 non-call five high yield bond versus a fixed rate that swaps the floating rate preferred or a 20-year municipal, they're all going to act differently depending on what happens with interest rates. Um, we use treasuries more so to manage our liquidity, and we're not looking to really use them to subsidize a duration exposure. We do similar, however, we usually are very short on the treasury curve, three, six-month type of allocation, which allows us quickly to reallocate when we see an opportunity in those three core asset classes of credit, preferred, or muni. Can you talk a bit about what makes Brams Hill different from its competitors and what you think is your investment edge? So at Brams Hill, we have very high intellectual capital. I have known my three co-PMs for 14, 17, and 18 years, and my two partners for over 35 years. There's a high debate every day on every aspect of our portfolio. And out of 23 employees, the 14 that are on the investment team, everyone from the lowest person on the totem pole to me takes ownership of the portfolio. So we try and manage in a very flat structure, just the way I would manage uh, prior trading desks in my career. And it allows for a very good idea generation. Uh, it allows for very few mistakes 
because everyone is working together. And we've also set it up where the firm compensation is based purely on how the firm performs. So there are no guaranteed contracts. There are just base salaries. And it, again, it creates an environment of a, of a team effort. We encourage everyone from young staff to old, older, more seasoned staff to voice ideas. And we have idea roundtables regularly. And we're, we're definitely set up from a risk management standpoint where there are officers in the firm that are risk managers as well as compliance managers that see the portfolios daily, which also is another channel check on just our portfolio management. Our competitive edge, if I had to say, is also the fact that we do not look at a benchmark. If clients said to us what their benchmark was, we would be paying attention to that all day long, and it would be distracting to what we are trying to do, which is make money in all different environments and make sure that you are committing your capital properly. Without a benchmark, it's a very clean way to look at the world, at least in our securities, and it doesn't force you to do things that you would be uncomfortable with your own personal capital doing. What do you think other money managers fail to recognize within these income-generating asset classes? So we have clients that hear the word unconstrained and they hang up the telephone. It has been a very difficult, let's say, area in the fixed income markets where people are selling these funds where they can go anywhere for income. In our humble view, it's tough to be the expert on mortgages, structured products, emerging markets, corporate credit, MLPs, REITs, high yield, distressed, convertible bonds. Very tough to do that. Our team works very well in a process that I've used ever since 2002 when, when I was managing at, at Bramsell, where we have a risk grid. So we use stop losses, we use concentration limits, et cetera. But also our team works very well where we can make an allocation shift quickly without going through a large committee. When does the investment style tend to work and when will you face headwinds? Personally, in my career, I've done better in times of dislocation and duress. So I was positive in 98, in 0102, in 08 in 11, in 15, in December 18, periods where there's been dislocation. My team is an extension of myself, and they've also been with me, and we've run things together during those times of dislocation. So we tend to, as a group, get very focused in down markets. And I don't know that anyone fires us in an up market. We participate, but we're very good and we've made about 75 to 80% of our return in times of dislocation. And that's where our core skill set is. Tend to not get shaken or worried or nervous. Those are actually good environments for us and what we do. And we're not buying distress 
securities and getting on credit committees, more so we're buying higher quality assets when they're under duress. And we tend to have a very clean uh, thought process towards those. How does Bramshill incorporate ESG into its investment process? So in a number of ways. One, we use a, a Bloomberg coded format where all of our investments are based along a Bloomberg score. And Bloomberg does a very good job with this. A score of 50 is considered conservative. We're actually north of that from an ESG standpoint, where we require even a higher score to be an appropriate investment. We also apply to the UN ESG policies. So we are in that, let's say, grid where you have to hit certain metrics. And by definition, some of our asset classes are always ESG, significantly ESG um, compatible. There's others that we're conscious that we avoid. We don't do tobacco. We don't do alcohol. We're not doing, you know, coal. We do, there's, there's, you know, we could go down the list, but there is, is definitely a list that we avoid. And then there's an approved list, which um, we're allowed to do. We try and be very efficient on being compatible with ESG because we're conscious of not just corporate governance, but we're conscious of the environment. We're conscious of activists, of how, how active management is. So even something like the big banks and financial institutions, there are a number of them that do a very good job of being ESG compliant. Thinking back over the last decades of your career, what are the biggest changes that you've seen in the investment business over that period of time? There's been a clear move over the years to a shrinking of liquidity in the marketplace around dealers, traders, market makers. And there's been, just specific to fixed income, a large increase in debt, both in the credit markets, in the government markets, the sovereign markets. There's a lack of experience trading price gaps or quicker dislocations People are experienced, tends to be they move from the sell side to the buy side, and some of the end users on the buy side are experienced or or, um, older in tenure. But uh, there definitely is a shift where there's been less liquidity and capital commitment. There's much more debt in general to trade, and there's a lack of learned history in some of these asset classes that we're discussing. So if you think about the next 10 years, what are the biggest trends that you believe will drive market performance? One trend that I think will drive performance is all the algorithmic trading that's going on. And there is definitely a trend in fixed income to migrate towards more of that. It's going to be very interesting to see how those systems and programs adapt to nuances in the credit markets, which are still conducted over the counter in negotiation styles, 
as well as relative value relationships that might not be as picked up quickly as they would be from one stock to another. That is one trend that we see, and we're, as a firm, continuing to engage in that. We've actually hired some outside firms to build us different sort of analytical models as well as execution uh, systems that we use. That being said, it's still a people business, and our humble view is that it will be the man or woman behind the program that knows how to use that program to extract the best uh, investment knowledge. The other trend will be towards ETFs, closed-end funds, mutual funds, more fund format. Seems that more and more advisors as well as investors are comfortable or getting more comfortable with buying funds instead of individual securities. That's from both a perceived better liquidity area, as well as a diversification tool instead of owning single name exposure. So those are two trends that we think will continue. Lots of leaders have daily routines to help them stay focused. Do you do anything from a daily routine perspective to help you stay motivated throughout the day? I do. And it's more so driven in my morning routine. I'm very much an early riser. I will work out for a half hour, four or five days a week. But during that time, I'm typically listening to something investment-wise, either a podcast or an interview or a video. So my mind is always working. I also tend to think very clearly in the mornings. So I would say between 5.30 and 8.30, there is just a lot that gets done where I set up my day. And I typically try and focus on tackling something that might be not pressure filled, but that's a very important or that is on my mental docket that I need to get done. I try and get that out of the way early in the day. So it frees me up the rest of the day to interact with my team, with different things in the market, with my family, whatever life would bring you. So it's very much based on a morning routine, a morning focus where you're not distracted. And um, it's comforting being in a routine. It's uh, even when I go on vacation, you know, I have a uh, trading system that's sent ahead. So I'm very in sync with everything that, you know, that I'm doing and that my firm is doing, you know, without not being able to take downtime. But that morning routine is, is, is very important for me. So Art, what's the best career advice you've ever received? Always be trading and know where your positions are. So when I say that in times of duress, even high quality securities, because nothing for the most part trades on a screen the way an equity does, you have to do price discovery or have to know where your liquidity is. So the best piece of advice I have, I've gotten is Always be liquid, always be trading, always be aware of where your positions are. And when that occurs, you'll find yourself as well always remaining humble because none of us are bigger than the market. 
and you want to be respectful of the market. So it allows you to every day grade yourself and answer to yourself as well as I'm sure we, everyone has bosses, right? So whether you have investors or you have senior bosses above you, um, everyone's reporting somewhere. But uh, that's one thing that keeps you as a portfolio manager very true to your positioning. Thanks to Art for sharing his insights today into his investment process, as well as his personal interests and background. Until next time, I'm Mary Mock. Thank you for listening to Distinctively Active Investing. You can find the resources mentioned in the episode and learn all about Touchstone at www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash podcast. If you like the show, please share it with someone you know. We appreciate when you subscribe to the show and take the time to leave us a rating and review. Find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. I'm Blake Moore, and from all of us at Touchstone Investments, thank you for listening. The companies mentioned in this interview are not held in the Touchstone Flexible Income Fund. Bramsill Investments, LLC, became the sub-advisor to the Touchstone Flexible Income Fund in November 2018. MLPs is an acronym for Master Limited Partnership. REITs is an acronym for Real Estate Investment Trusts. ESG is an acronym for Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance. UNESG is in reference to the UN Principles of Responsible Investment, or PRI, an international organization that works to promote the incorporation of environmental, social, and corporate governance factors, ESG, into investment decision-making. ETF is an acronym for Exchange Traded Fund. Investment return and principal value of an investment in a fund will fluctuate so that investor shares, when redeemed, may be worth more or less than their original cost. All investing involves risk. Performance data quoted is past performance, which is no guarantee of future results. The information provided is for general information purposes and is not investment advice. Opinions may change without notice based on economic, market, business, and other conditions. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The prospectus and the summary prospectus contain this and other information about the fund. To obtain a prospectus or a summary prospectus, contact your financial professional or download and or request one at touchstoneinvestments.com resources or call Touchstone at 800-638-8194. Please read the prospectus and or summary prospectus carefully before investing. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities, Inc., a member FINRA and SIPC.